Well, brothers and sisters, good morning and welcome to a cold Sunday morning gathering here at Hagerstown Church. Uh, my name is Chris Gomes and I serve as one of the pastors here at Hagerstown Church and it is a joy to be with you this morning. I want to ask you very quickly a rhetorical question. And when I say rhetorical, I don't mean throw the answer out loud. But I want to ask you, where were you 16 weeks ago today? 16 weeks ago, where were you? What did you eat for breakfast 16 weeks ago? I think I had homemade jalapeno cream cheese on a plain bagel. But that's just a staple in our house. What did you drink that morning 16 weeks ago? What did you read 16 weeks ago? I'm going to give you a hint. It's in your loop. 16 weeks ago, we began studying through Mark chapter 12. And 16 weeks later, we're going to end Mark chapter 12. And I got to preach Mark chapter 12 16 weeks ago. And this morning, I get to conclude our study in Mark chapter 12 16 weeks later. It's been an enriching study through this gospel. And in Mark, we have learned many lessons, not only of uh, how Christians are to live, but we've learned this primary lesson of who Christ is. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, we are going to be in Mark chapter 12, verses 38 to 44. For those of you who uh, might be new to reading the Bible, uh, let me give you an encouragement. The Gospel of Mark is the second book in the New Testament. So the Bible is broken up into two Testaments, the Old and the New. And so the New Testament is towards the end of the book. The Gospel of Mark is the second book in the New Testament. And the larger numbers are the chapter numbers, and the smaller numbers are the verse numbers. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we have extra copies available for you. Uh, You can also follow along on the screens behind me as I read Mark chapter 12, verses 38 to 44. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into their offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty, has put in everything she had and all she had to live on. In this morning, we're going to see two kinds of devotion to God. So if you're taking notes this morning, two kinds of devotion to God. The first kind being a false devotion and the second kind being a true devotion. This first kind of devotion is going to serve us as a warning And the second kind will serve for us as an example. So we're going to first look at the scribe's devotion to self in verses 38 to 40. And then we're going to look at the widow's devotion to God in verses 41 to 44. But as we look at these two devotions to God, the main idea that I hope that we walk away with this morning is simply 
that the reward of genuine devotion to God is Christ himself. The reward of genuine devotion to God is Christ himself. If you uh, have come this morning thinking that the reward of your devotion to God in whatever form that might look like, that your devotion looks like, is going to be extra blessing or extra riches or comfort or luxuries or an increase in wealth and uh, uh, comfort today, I am sorry to say you might be disappointed. But if you come to recognize that the reward of our devotion to God is Christ himself, then you will be enriched in more ways than you can possibly imagine. So, two kinds of devotion. Let's uh, look at this first kind. The scribe's devotion to self. So, in verses 38 to 40, uh, if you look at the text, Jesus, uh, look at how the text begins. And in his teaching, he said. So, when we start looking at this passage, what we're seeing is a continuation the continuation of his teaching from verses 35 to 37. So two weeks ago, Pastor Josh walked us through Jesus' teaching in the synagogue in verses 35 to 37. Now, Jesus continues his teaching in the synagogue, and he does not include a funny illustration. Jesus does not include some sort of story that he thought would really ring well with his listeners. What he does is he gives his listeners a sober warning. And in this sober warning, he's saying, you need to pay attention. He says, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. I think some of us might be uncomfortable if I came up here this morning and said, beware of such and such. Beware of person. You might feel comfortable if I just go about name dropping all the people you should stay away from. Jesus seems to be very uncomfortable, or very comfortable with the uncomfortable. He seems to be very comfortable with what makes us uncomfortable. He gives a sober warning, and what he says here to get our attention is, listen, he said in effect, there's a group of people that you need to look out for. You need to watch out for them. You need to be careful of them. You need to be wary of these people. So who are these people that he is warning them of? Beware of the scribes. Beware of the scribes. Many of us, if we're familiar with our Bibles, when we think of the scribes, we might often associate them with another group of self-righteous religious leaders. You might be thinking of the Pharisees. So the scribes and the Pharisees, the primary religious leaders that we will often think of. Now, the Pharisees and the scribes, they may have walked in similar religious circles, but these two groups, they were not the same. If the Pharisees were the teachers and guardians of Jewish theology, the scribes were essentially lawyers. They interpreted and ruled on various religious legal matters that were brought before them. and that These were not weak individuals. They had a lot of political and social clout. They were powerful individuals because not only were they well-educated, they uh, had political power. They had seats in the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling council. So picture in your mind when you hear the term Sanhedrin, something like a religious supreme court. 
This is where the final interpretation would be made. The, the final decision would be rendered. But they didn't just act as lawyers interpreting the law, they also acted as lawmakers. They had added their own traditions to the law of God. In practice, these added traditions were elevated to the same level as God's law. Uh, Matthew 15, verses 1 and 2, it gives us an idea of what we're dealing with here. Because in Matthew 15, we see in the opening verses there that the Pharisees and the scribes approached Jesus from Jerusalem, the seat of the religious power. They approached Jesus and said to him, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? So, that's who we're dealing with. Now, Mark chapter 12 is not the only passage in which we find Jesus warning his uh, hearers of religious leaders. So for all of the children in the room today, uh, if you live at home with your parents, I want you to hear this very, very closely. Did you know that Jesus' disciples knew that Jesus loved him, uh, loved them? Jesus' disciples knew that Jesus loved them. He loved them so much that when he saw that they might be getting near danger, Jesus gave them warnings that would help them to grow and understand. Just like your parents love you and give you warnings so that you can grow and understand. Warnings are good for us even if we disagree with mom and dad. But for all you kids, why don't you consider reading Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 this afternoon? Now, let's look at another example of a warning of religious leaders. Luke chapter 12, Jesus gives another important warning. In Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, Jesus, uh, the text says, In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling on one another, he, Jesus, began to say to his disciples, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. So, looking at Luke chapter 12, Mark chapter 12 in mind, what made the Pharisees particularly dangerous? These were not people who uh, were dangerous because they were skilled warriors. Uh, they did not even have any sort of command over the military forces. What made them dangerous can very much make us dangerous. And what made them dangerous was hypocrisy. Jesus warned his disciples. He loved his disciples. He's giving his disciples a warning here of the hypocrisy of the religious leaders, and he warned them that which is hidden in the dark will in time be exposed and brought to the light. Hypocrisies promise to you, dear brothers and sisters, that you will never be found out is nothing but a ruse and a deception. Hypocrisies promise to you is just a ruse and deception. Now, having warned his listeners who to watch out for, notice in verses 38 to 40 how Jesus depicted the scribes. Jesus was straightforwardly exposing the hypocrisy of the scribes as men driven by pride and greed. He said that they like to walk around in long robes. 
So these long robes basically were these long prayer shawls. And not only were they prayer shawls, but on the shawls at the ends of the four corners of the shawl, they had golden tassels, right? Jesus exposed this as a kind of silent alarm for the public to notice that here's a man who thinks that he takes God very seriously and he wants you to think the same. So that's what this prayer shawl would, would do. It was a kind of silent alarm for the public. But we're going to learn through the rest of this passage that for the scribes, authentic prayer takes a backseat to public perception. They cared to be seen by the public as pious and devout more than actually being pious and devout. Jesus continued saying that the scribes liked public greetings in the marketplaces. Who doesn't like a warm welcome? If you, if you came in this morning and maybe you're visiting with our church for the first time, I am confident somebody with a really nice smile approached you and said good morning and welcome. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is not talking about, hey, they like to be, uh, they, they like to be able to share a greeting with you. No, the, the, the scribes uh, liked to be noticed, particularly in the marketplace where the customs meant when the scribes would walk by, everybody except the tradesmen, carpenters, builders, etc., everyone would have to stop what they're doing and watch them walk by. Uh, something similar uh, that, I, that I picture of is when uh, I went to Thailand in 2011, uh, we went on this evangelistic mission trip, and uh, the very first place we stopped was a very dangerous Thai prison. Uh, that was my first exposure to prison ministry was uh, somewhere in Thailand. I don't even remember what city we were in, but the Thai presidential motorcade drove by, and all of the traffic had to pull away. And we didn't know what was happening, but these long streams of white cars and limousines were driving by. We learned that it was actually the, the, the I believe it was the king of Thailand. I don't think they have a president, excuse me. Uh, additionally, we stopped at a movie theater, and every movie, every movie theater would begin with a special uh, uh, devotional period, just a couple of minutes of... Uh, effectively what was propaganda video of the king walking by and sharing his blessings and his salutations. And then you see these people immediately, as soon as the music began, they knew what was coming. They stood up. And us Americans, we're like, where are the previews? Right? We just stayed seated, but we had to quickly stand up. And when we stood up, we're watching everybody notice who was before them. Right? So that is what the prayer shawls actually were meant for. The prayer shawls simply meant that they liked to be greeted in the marketplaces. Furthermore, not only did they uh, like to be noticed in the marketplaces, but they secured for themselves the best seats in the synagogue. These were prominent seats in the synagogue, so when they finished teaching, they didn't go and sit back down with their shoulders next to the various folks sitting there uh, worshiping together. No, they sat in the front facing the congregation. So, what happens when someone is sitting in front of you in the congregation? You're going to notice them, right? You're going to notice them when they have uh, secured for themselves the best seats in the synagogues. You're going to be seen when the congregation is looking at you. As I, and I say this as the congregation is looking at me. But, what, what also happens when you have the places of honor at feasts? you're going to be noticed. 
you're going to be noticed. Jesus demonstrated in these various ways that the scribes manufactured positions and situations so that the people would pay attention to them for their own gain. Not the gain of the people in the marketplaces or for the people who were sitting in the pews. They were to be noticed for the gain of the scribes. Jesus exposed the scribes as being self-righteous and self-seeking hypocrites who had no true love of God. What they loved was neither God nor God's people. What they loved was their power. They loved their pride. They loved their position. They loved the praise that came from their platform. In other words, Jesus' warning to the listeners in the synagogue Beware of the predatory religious hypocrites. So the scribes were guilty of hypocrisy just like the Pharisees in Luke chapter 12. And then you add to their hypocrisy the fact that they were predatory. Now, why do I say predatory? I am saying these men were being called by Jesus as predators because Jesus said as much himself. Look at verse 40. They devour widows' houses. These are not the type of men that you want to be your neighbors. They devour widows' houses. And what made this particularly vile was that unlike those who are wealthy by vocation, the livelihoods of the scribes were dependent upon the generosity of those who would come to the temple and give their offerings. But according to Jesus, these men would prey on and take advantage of the vulnerable. They would take advantage of the vulnerable. And in Jesus' words, the vulnerable in mind are particularly widows. They manipulate the most vulnerable for their own financial gain. This was a particular gross abuse of their authority because their platform was meant to serve God's people. But they twisted their uh, platform in order to serve themselves. And Jesus' language here, devouring widows' houses, it paints the kind of picture the listeners would understand that, listen, the scribes, they are not going to be satisfied until they have had their fill. They won't be satisfied until they have consumed the widow's house. He warned his listeners that these men are hypocritical religious predators who devour widows' houses. Friends, do you know how profoundly concerned God is for the vulnerable? particularly for the fatherless and the widows? In Scripture, there are approximately 80 direct references to widows. Not one, not two. There are 80. It's as if uh, the Lord was repeating what he thought was important enough for us to be concerned with. In Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 11 and 14, I won't read these passages. I'll, uh, I'll cite them for you. Uh, I want to encourage you to read these passages this afternoon. But in Deuteronomy 16, verses 11 to 14, God explicitly provided for the widows in Israel so that they were not to be excluded from the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Tabernacles. In Psalm 68, 5, uh, the psalmist tells us that God is, and I quote, father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Think about the picture that the psalmist is providing there. God is dwelling in his place of holiness, and what is he doing? He is being a father to those who don't have fathers, and he is defending and protecting those who are most weak and vulnerable. 
father of the fatherless and protector of widows, is God in his holy habitation. The Old Testament prophets, they continued. They rebuked those who took advantage of and victimized widows. You see that in Isaiah chapter 10, verses 1 to 3. You'll see that again in Jeremiah chapter 22, verses 1 to 5. You'll see that again in Ezekiel chapter 22, verses 6 and 7. Considering all of this, this uh, Old Testament apologetic for caring for the vulnerable, particularly fatherless and the widows. Do you know who should have had a very intimate understanding that God cares for the vulnerable? It's the scribes. The scribes should have known this very, very well. But they were blinded by pride and they were blinded by greed and they reeked of hypocrisy. In a society where widows were particularly vulnerable, the religious and predatory hypocrisy of the scribes was particularly wicked. Many of the widows that would be in the temple, their uh, husbands probably did not have a uh, very generous life insurance policy. Right? They probably didn't get 10 to 12 times the amount of their, husband's, uh, their late husband's salary. Many of them were probably very poor. They were very vulnerable. But God wasn't just concerned for the uh, widows exclusively in the Old Testament and in the Old Covenant. His concern for the vulnerable, particularly widows, is explicitly shown in the New Testament and amongst his New Covenant people. It's as if even in the New Covenant, God wants to hear, have us hear that he cares about the widows amongst us. Where do I get this? Well, a lot of folks want to see a New Testament church today, right? When Acts chapter 6, let's look at a New Testament church. In Acts chapter 6, we're shown that the early church cared for the widows in their membership. They cared about their fellow members who lost their husbands. The task of caring for the Hellenist, the Greek-speaking widows, was so important that seven men who were of good repute and full of the Spirit and of wisdom were appointed to be responsible. So I want you to, I want you to hear this very clearly. God's job for those who are going to care for the Greek-speaking widows, minority, the, the social minority in the primarily Jewish church, God's re- job requirements for these people who would fill this responsibility is that they be of good repute, so trustworthy and dependable. They're full of the spirit and of wisdom. It's as if the widows mattered so much to the Lord in Acts chapter 6 that he wanted those who were going to serve them to smell like himself. Acts chapter 6 isn't the only place where we see this. Paul gave detailed instructions to the church in 1 Timothy chapter 5 regarding the church's responsibility to honor and care for widows. Uh, James chapter 1 verse 27 Seems like the church continues to care about this issue with caring for the vulnerable. In James chapter 1, verse 27, the, James defines religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father as this, that you visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep one, oneself unstained from the world. Brothers and sisters, Jesus himself showed care and compassion for widows. In uh, the Gospel of Luke, uh, Luke records for us how Jesus raised from the dead the only son of a widow in Luke chapter 12. In verses 12 and 14, Luke records, 
as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, so Luke wants you to hear very clearly what the, the picture he's painting, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. That's an important detail to keep in mind. The only son of his mother. Now, and she was a widow. So she has no husband, she has no other children, and the only son of this woman Now he has died. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Friends, that's absolutely astounding. Here is an unnamed widow who has no husband, no other children, and the only son who most likely was her source of economic, uh, uh, of economic support and income, uh, not to mention bread, N- now he has died. And in this massive crowd of people around her, notice who saw her. Notice who took passion on her. Notice who said to her, do not weep. Verse 14, then he came up and touched the buyer, and the bearer stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. In more ways than one, by the raising of the dead of this, uh, this son, Jesus restored so much to this poor widow. The point of my sermon is not that we should be caring for widows. We should be caring for widows. I hope you actually understand that. But I do want to stress why I think the New Testament is so clear about the care for the vulnerable in the, in, in the scriptures. And I want to give you one more example. And this might be the most poignant example. Consider John chapter 19, verses 26 and 27. In John chapter 19, as Jesus was being crucified, he was concerned but it doesn't appear that he was concerned for his own well-being, but the well-being of what appears to be his own widowed mother. John records in verses 26 and 27, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, pause for a second, where is Jesus in this picture? Just imagine for a second what, what the surroundings look like. He's not sitting comfortably, and he's not standing behind an elegant and historic pulpit. At this point, Jesus is nailed to a splintered cross, bruised and beaten, and he saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, and he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son, not Christ. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Friends, Jesus was concerned for his mom. And those who are widowed moms in our congregation, should we not extend such care and compassion for them too? When thinking of God, Many of us will be quick to think of God as holy or sovereign, right? And that's true. And you should not diminish your view of God's holiness or his sovereignty. That never goes well. But are we, as a church, are we as quick to think of God 
not just as holy and sovereign, but are we as quick to think of God as one who is father of the fatherless and protector of widows? If we are to obey Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, where he says to be imitators of God, one of the ways that we can practically imitate God is by having a heart for and caring for the vulnerable, like those who are fatherless and those who are widows. So for you, for me, that may look like having extra popsicles and juice boxes available in your kitchen when the neighborhood kids are playing outside, and these are the same kids that you see day in and day out, and you know that they go home to maybe one parent or maybe to other family members who are not their parents. Extending care and love to the vulnerable, maybe in our own backyards or front yards or in our cul-de-sacs, extending care uh, and love to them is well worth the annual membership at Sam's Club. And for all you Costco fans, you can just drive 24 miles east to Frederick and that annual membership there is worth it as well if you can practically extend care to the vulnerable. Imitating God for us may also look uh, simply like picking up your uh, membership directory, flipping through your membership directory, and praying for the widows in our congregation, calling the widows in our congregation, and as James 1.27 says, to visit the widows in their affliction. A couple of simple ways for you to be able to extend care and to demonstrate imitating God just by in, the, in those ways. Now, Mark chapter 12. In response to a scribe, we saw, uh, we saw this a few weeks ago. In response to a scribe in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 34, Jesus answered the question of which commandment is most important. And this is how he answered it. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now, he continues to teach here in verses 38 to 40, and he clearly showed, Jesus clearly showed, without using clever arguments, rather just simply highlighting their own hypocritical behavior, that the scribes neither had a love for God nor a love for their neighbor. So, those who were expertly skilled to understand the law fail spectacularly at keeping it. Because they have no love for God and they have no love for their neighbor. His, uh, Jesus' final criticism here, the scribes for a pretense make long prayers. There's not a lot of commentary required here. For a pretense, the scribes pray for a very long time. They kind of just go on and 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 on. But why do they do this? Well, we know it's a pretense their prayers, uh, when they pray for a long time, they're hoping that their hearers would think of them as being especially pious and devout. So their prayers have very little to do with God and very little to do with God's people. Their prayers serve to secure for themselves their own self-glory. So what will be their reward then for all of this service that they provide? What will be their reward for their devotion to God which Jesus has clearly highlighted and, ex- and explained, is false devotion. Greater condemnation is reserved for them. Considering all of this, that their hypocrisy is so extraordinary. 
uh, a helpful uh, uh, explanation and a definition of uh, hypocrisy. Uh, I think as Tim Keller provides uh, this helpful definition, he defines this helpfully. He says, an inconsistent person, a person that says one thing, does another, and knows that they're doing wrong, something wrong, but puts up a front. So what is the hypocritical person? There's someone who is an inconsistent person, a person that says one thing, but they do another, and they know that they are doing something wrong, but they put up front. Friends, does this describe you? Does this describe you? Are you best described as an inconsistent person and someone who says one thing but does another? Maybe you're unaware or maybe you know you're putting up a front because you don't want to be found out. If I just described you, I want you to know you're in a safe place. And I would encourage you and urge you, if, if, if I just described you, I want to urge you to ask God to give you wisdom from above. I'm not saying, I, I didn't just say, hey, ask God to not make you a hypocrite anymore. You should be asking God to do that. Ask God for wisdom from above. Why wisdom? Well, James chapter 3, verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, and finally, sincere. Do you know what hypocrisy is not? It's not sincere. So ask God for for wisdom above if you see hypocrisy in your lives. If you're a Christian, you have likely heard skeptics express their distrust towards religion, like Christianity, because they've witnessed various forms of hypocrisy. Maybe they saw various hypocrisy in Christian leaders. Uh, Maybe they've seen various hypocrisy in a church that they might have grown up in or went to. But truthfully, many of the expressions of hypocrisy that our skeptic friends and neighbors, those who are skeptical of Christianity, we must treat them as friends and neighbors. Many of our uh, skeptic friends and neighbors, the hypocrisy that they notice if we're completely transparent, simply cannot be justified or excused. We cannot make excuses for what is blatantly hypocritical in the church. I can't even begin to share with you this morning how some of my own heroes in the faith uh, were exposed as having engaged in decades-long adulterous relationships all while preaching on the sacredness of the covenant of marriage or preaching on God's holiness. It breaks my heart to think of them. And many of those leaders uh, were leaders who helped me to understand the character of God more clearly than I did on my own. Sometimes our skeptical neighbors, they witness blatant hypocrisy. And we may just need to admit that they might not be wrong about what they witness that is clearly hypocritical. And if you're with us this morning and, and you're the person that I'm describing, you're someone who is skeptical of Christianity because you have seen so much hypocrisy from Christians, maybe you're somebody that claims to profess Christ but you don't really want to do a lot with church because you see so many hypocrites in the church, well, let me speak to you for a second. And I want you to know that what you have is an admirable concern. 
Christians should be concerned with hypocrisy in their lives and in the lives of their fellow church members in the church. Why? Because Jesus says as much in Matthew chapter 7, verse 3. This is probably the most popular that people want to pick out, right? Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Do you know who Jesus was speaking to? Everybody that was there was someone who had a log in their own eye. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 7, is the only individual with clear vision. That's an aside. That's not in my manuscript. Now, my challenge to you, if you're skeptical of Christianity because of the various forms of hypocrisy that you've seen, or you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and you don't want to do much with the church, my challenge to you is that you should also consider that hypocrisy is not an exclusively Christian dilemma, as if it's not found anywhere else. Hypocrisy appears to be a human dilemma. It's as if hypocrisy is one of the most unpleasant symptoms of a deeper disease. I am not making excuses for Christians or Christian leaders who are guilty of hypocrisy. The scriptures are clear. Jesus has words for them. But I do want to Unlike the way in which politicians rush to put out their PR fires when they've been found out of being or doing something hypocritical, the Christian response to hypocrisy is not to make excuses. The Christian response to hypocrisy is repentance. Putting away hypocrisy, friends, is a Christian reflex. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. You want to meditate on a passage of Scripture this week? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 might be really helpful. Peter, he says this, So all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Notice here, Peter does not say if you're dealing with malice uh, or you're uh, deceiving people that you should uh, put away a part of it. He says, put it all away. And what does he include in this list? He includes hypocrisy. The, the, the stench of hypocrisy in, in Christian circles should be very easily noticeable. We should be able to pick it up. But not only should we notice it, we, in Peter's words, should be quick to put it all away. So, in what ways have you found lingering hypocrisy in your own life? That would be a good question to uh, uh, talk over and to just kind of ponder on, maybe over lunch or with your spouse or a fellow member this week. In what way do you need to put away all hypocrisy? What, if anything, are you clinging to in the dark that, if brought to the light, would demonstrate hypocrisy? If, th- if, if that's you, you should know that you still have to... The presence of hypocrisy amongst Christians is not automatic grounds that they are going to be damned. We can repent and, by God's grace, put hypocrisy away. And not only can we just put it away, we never have to go back and look at it again. Whatever uh, type of hypocrisy that uh, might be present in your life, dear brothers and sisters, there is grace for you today. Put it all away. But this isn't even the first place that we are to understand Jesus' disdain, particularly for religious hypocrisy. 
Uh, if you remember, uh, we spent a good bit of time uh, as a church, those of us in uh, discipleship groups and reading through the church-wide Bible, we memorized a sermon. And I'm not talking about Martin Lloyd-Jones, I'm talking about the Sermon on the Mount. You should read Martin Lloyd-Jones' sermons, by the way. But let me quote Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 1, and, 1 through 5, maybe some of these passages will start to come back to your memory, and maybe you start mouthing them as I read them. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Jesus said this, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. Sounds kind of That they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you that they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not, left, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray... Remember, this sounds familiar, Mark chapter 12. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Mark chapter 12 does not include Jesus talking about the, uh, the scribes fasting, but in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 16, he also talks about uh, hypocrites and fasting. And I thought this was really important. He said, and when you fast... Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fast be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. So think about that. Even when they're fasting, this is fascinating, even when they're fasting, they're literally starving themselves, they are actually filling themselves. They're filling themselves with what they hope will be vain praise from those who are witnessing their faces. I'd rather go for steak and mashed potatoes than vain praise. But this is what filled the religious hypocrites. Vain praise. One more final comment on the Lord's disdain for such religious hypocrisy. Jesus just keeps talking about this. As, as his hearers, it would appear that we should pay attention to this. He keeps repeating th- th- this idea of his disdain for religious hypocrisy. Matthew chapter 15, verses 7 and 8. You hypocrites! warm way to start the conversation. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts, their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. That is a particularly stinging response to someone who's is to teach the commandments of God. But that is Jesus' disdain for religious hypocrisy. So what are we supposed to learn from this first uh, kind of scribe's devotion to self? Simply this. That devotion to self, dressed in the garb of religious pretense, will be condemned. Jesus has very little tolerance for religious hypocrisy. Now, having looked at the scribe's devotion to self, let's look at this second kind of devotion that we see in this passage. And that's the widow's devotion in verses 41 to 44. So, Mark sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in sums, and a poor widow came and put in two copper coins to make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said, truly, I this poor widow 
has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. They all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So, so Jesus concluded his teaching. He sits down opposite the treasury, and he's watching people submit their offering. Growing up as a Roman Catholic, uh, we would have the plates pass by to us, and everybody that offered their gifts, most everybody, they had a very particular tell of when they were going to place their offering into the plate. They crumpled up the check or their cash, and they rolled it into the palm of their hand so you couldn't see it anymore. Right? You couldn't see what was being offered, but it was being put in. That's not how the rich were giving in the days of Jesus in the temple. So Jesus sits down opposite the treasury, which is located in a place called the Court of Women. Now, for all you ladies here, they didn't name the court here because they valued women very much. They named this place the Court of Women because women were permitted to be in this area. Not just women, but the men as well. So this area that Jesus is sitting in almost acts as the economic hub of the temple. It's almost where all of the banking activity is going to occur. Men and women both are permitted to be here together so that they can give their offerings in the giving box. Surrounding the court were 13 large receptacles with large trumpets. So imagine our giving box having a megaphone on it, and what would happen is when people would walk by, they would drop their offerings into the box, and if you're paying attention, if you're nearby, you can hear, thanks to the trumpet, the megaphone, just how big of a thud that the bag of coins dropped would make. Not only that, you'd be able to hear how, uh, how the, uh, mingling, or the, the, the chingling of two coins uh, the sound that it would make when it would fall by itself. Not much of a thud, right? So, the rich gave large sums, but then Jesus takes notice of this two small copper coins. The first thing that I noticed as I was preparing this was that Jesus notices those whom the world won't notice. He notices those whom the world won't Notice, from a worldly perspective, there's nothing particularly remarkable about this woman. And the chips were stacked against her in a lot of ways. She's socially disadvantaged to some degree because she's a woman. She's economically disadvantaged because she's a widow. And her economic disposition is obvious because she lives in poverty. But in this large court, likely with thousands of people all around her, who did Jesus take notice of? A poor widow took notice of a poor widow. Friends, there are countless people who according to worldly standards are more capable and more competent, more gifted and more successful and more accomplished than many of us might ever hope to be. But in God's economy, there is nothing so remarkable in and of ourselves for him to take notice of. Take, take some time this afternoon to read and meditate on Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 2. Just quickly, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, he chose us in himself. Verse 5, it was in love that he predestined us for adoption to sonship? No, to himself. Text is very clear. He has adopted us to himself. For what purpose has he done this? Verses 5 and 6, according to the purpose of his will. 
What is the purpose of his will? To the praise of his glorious grace. If you are a Christian, you have been adopted not simply to accomplish something, but you have been adopted for the sole possession of someone. And this someone who has adopted you, dear brothers and sisters, has done this to the praise of his glorious grace. Verses 9 and 10, why has he done all of this? Verses 9 and 10, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Do you want to know what God's will is for your life? He has set his will forth in his son. Yes, you might not know which job to take or which person to marry, but God's will for your life is wrapped in Jesus Christ. You could say God's will for your life is the praise of Jesus Christ. To, the, to treasure him above all earthly treasures. To delight in Jesus Christ, the wellspring of our soul. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in his mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, not merely loved, with gr- the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. In his great mercy, in his great love, in our great poverty spiritually, in our great uh, disposition of being destitute, he took notice of us. That's why we gather every Sunday morning right here. To take notice of a gracious, kind, merciful God who in his mercy and grace taken notice of us. Now, let's move back to verse 43. In verse 43, Jesus called his disciples uh, for private instruction. We've seen this in various other examples through the Gospel of Mark. He called his disciples for private instruction, and he said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow, she has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. Why, why does he say this? For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So this example here of this poor widow, in contrast to the rich and the hypocrites, is yet another object lesson for his disciples to understand the true nature of discipleship genuine devotion to God. We've seen various other examples in Mark chapter 8, verse 35. And I'm paraphrasing, Jesus said, if you want to save your lives, you need to lose your life. In Mark chapter 9, verse 30, Jesus said, if you want to be great, then you have to be the greatest servant. Do you want to be first? Then you need to be last. Why was Jesus drawing attention to the rich, giving large sums? If you're in the congregation today and you're rich, and you are giving by faith, Jesus is not condemning your offering. He's teaching us a particularly important lesson here. Was he saying that their giving didn't matter? Or was he saying that the rich shouldn't give large sums? It's not quite what's happening. There's something deeper happening here. He's instructing his disciples something that they need to understand. He was highlighting for them that it didn't cost the rich much to give away large sums. Their abundance made an abundance, and from that abundance, they were giving large sums and giving all that money away. 
many of them would likely be celebrated when they heard the loud thud at the bottom of the giving box. Alistair Begg uh, has really helpful words. He says, Jesus is teaching them that the rich gave what they would never miss while this poor widow gave what she couldn't afford. Isn't that it? Essentially, what the rich were doing was giving their loose change. This lady was giving all her change. The rich were able to go into their riches depending on the extent of their riches. Actually, touching their principal, take some of their interest, and out of their interest, make a generous contribution that made a big for people to say, and Begg says this in a delightful Scottish accent, which I will not replicate. He says, my, my, that is, a, that is quite a contribution. But this lady, who could have said to herself, well, I, I've only got two of them. I'll keep one for a loaf. She put them both. Jesus is demonstrating, he's instructing his disciples, your lives as disciples of Christ as my followers, will be to give away your life as this woman is. He's foreshadowing that they will have to give all of themselves to follow Christ for all their days. But in addition to that, the lesson that the widow is showing is that Jesus challenged the common way in which human beings ascribe value. We, we've heard this before. From a human perspective, we often look at appearances. Uh, if you paid any attention to the Met Gala over the last couple of weeks, celebrities with lots of money and lots of influence were wearing really weird dresses and suits. Right? The, the point was to be noticed right, at the Met Gala. The point was that they would make a splash, make a scene. Now, one of the common questions you would hear at the Met Gala is, who are you wearing? We're trying to be noticed. We often look at appearances. Think, though, that the larger sum from the rich demonstrated greater generosity on their part. $10,000 is obviously more than a penny, right? You would think that that person so much is being so generous. But Jesus is highlighting here the, the, the large offerings given by the rich here, it was only great in quantity. Their large gifts didn't really cost them anything. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, this put in more than all the internet will remember the ultra-generous people in our, in our world, like Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and whoever can afford to go to the Met Gala for the, the billions of dollars that they've given away to various charities. But here, let us notice who Jesus has noticed. He has noticed one whom the world has virtually forgotten. Now, the rich gave out of the abundance of the riches and according to Jesus, the poor widow gave more, who does she resemble? Who does she look like? She looks a lot like, if you're not familiar, the Macedonian churches, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul says of the uh, poor Macedonian churches, we want you to know, brothers, he's talking to the, the Christians in Corinth, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. What is, what is the Lord saying here? He's saying, 
Grace is present amongst the Macedonian Christians, and here's how you can see it. In an overflow of joy, while they're being severely afflicted, suffering, poverty, famine, while they're being severely afflicted in the midst of their extreme poverty and affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Their wealth of generosity was drowning to the Corinthians. They were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Now, all of Scripture is written for our instruction and edification. So, we should know that from the life of the Macedonian Christians, that there is a greater abundance of joy and a greater wealth available for you than what you own or what you can keep. Why would the Macedonians, in a severe test of affliction and their extreme poverty, overflow in a wealth of generosity? It's because their worth was not in what they owned, but in treasuring Christ. Their worth was in Christ. For this poor widow, giving all she had may not have been the economically prudent decision, but what she demonstrated in this act was more valuable than any earthly riches. And Jesus' concern appears not to be on the sum of the giving, but the posture of the heart in the giving. Unlike the rich and the hypocritical leaders, this poor widow demonstrated a humble dependence on God and genuine devotion to him to treasure him above all earthly treasures. Giving all she had demonstrated she was giving all of herself to the Lord. You could say that this is a picture of Romans chapter 12, verse 1. This might be what Paul is getting at in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, when he says that we are to present our whole selves, all of us, as a living sacrifice. So, two kinds of devotion in, uh, that's demonstrated in this passage. The devotion of the scribes to themselves and the devotion of the widow to God. But if we stop right there, we might be tempted to think, well, the scribes are the bad guys and it appears that the widow is the, the hero of the story, so be like the widow. Give everything away. But what if there's more to the story? What if there's more going on in this scene than we first realize? What if there is someone in this passage who demonstrates greater devotion to God? You could uh, say perfect devotion. What if there's someone in this text who has a far superior understanding, superior knowledge, superior submission to, and superior love for God and God's law, and even the scribes? A perfect understanding, perfect knowledge, perfect submission, perfect love. What if we're looking at someone who came not to abolish the law, but fulfill the law? What if we're looking at someone in this text whom the Father calls my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased? Someone who is willing to give you a righteousness that ex exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees if you turn to him in repentance and faith. Someone who we confess redeemed us from the curse of the by becoming a curse for us. 
it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. There was someone that we paid attention to who was hanged on a tree blessing a widowed mom. That someone became cursed for us. That someone became cursed for his mom. Who am I speaking of? The mystery and wonder of God made flesh Jesus Christ our Lord. With the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Son created all things, sustains all things, and makes all things new. Truly God and truly man, uh, truly God, he became truly man. Two natures in one person. He was born of the Virgin Mary and lived among us. Crucified, died, and buried, he rose on the third day, ascended to heaven, and will come again in glory and judgment. For us, he kept the law, atoned for sin, and satisfied wrath. He took our filthy rags and gave us righteous robe. He is our prophet, priest, and king, building his church, interceding for us, and reigning over all things. Jesus Christ is Lord, and we praise his holy name forever. This is what 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 is getting at. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Brothers and sisters, who has done this for you? Who would do something like this for you? Who has given up their all to give to you his all? Namely, the pleasure of the Father. Justification. Sanctification. Who has given to you adoption into sonship for the possession of God forever? A possession that will never be weakened and will never be released. Who has done this for you? Our call, dear saints, as those who are genuinely devoted to and dependent upon God, is to treasure this Christ of all things. It's because Jesus Christ, though he was rich, became poor for our sins, so that we by his poverty might become rich, can we sing words like, my worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone. My worth is not in skill or name, in win or lose, in pride or shame. I will not boast in wealth or might or in human wisdom's fleeting light, but I will boast in knowing Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are served in this text, in your holy, divinely inspired word. We are served with an example of true, genuine devotion that will be rewarded. Father, we confess that many times we have looked to uh, cheaper alternatives for reward. We have looked to uh, false treasures in this world. We have looked for uh, false comforts. But God, you have shown to us in Christ the true, genuine, uh, that the true reward, reward for genuine devotion. And God, we humbly confess Christ as Lord. We ask, God, that by your grace, you would enable us to present ourselves, to give all of ourselves to you, for you deserve far more than what we can bring.
God, we thank you for the gift of Christ, and we ask, Lord, now that you would uh, cause us to glory in Christ, who became poor for our sakes, so that we might become rich through his poverty. Father, we confess Christ as our treasure, and we ask, Lord, that you would continue for however long our days are numbered, that we would treasure Christ above all things. We pray all this, Lord, in his matchless, priceless, and wonderful name. Amen.